Welcome into another episode of the TD Pod. This is Travis here just recording a brief intro before we get into the episode with Jeff and I. So this is part one in a two-part series on a Baylor football season preview. So this first episode is much more freeform. Jeff and I were kind of just addressing any topic that came to mind. All of them focused on the 2022 season, but not nearly as structured as our second episode will be. So in the second episode, we're going to be addressing really making sure we hit all the big topics on offense, defense, and then kind of getting into our expectations for what this team is going to be in 2022. Whereas in this episode, it's kind of just like whatever topic comes to mind. So for example, you know, at one point I asked Jeff, you know, what does it mean to be a team that plays with composure and how do, how do coaches instill that in a team throughout an off season? So that's a topic that's very important for this season, but again, not, you know, not, as much purely, you know, what is this offense going to look like or, and stuff like that, that we're going to be addressing in the second episode. So I hope this first episode is still valuable. It's long, but you know, that's how it goes when Jeff and I start talking and rambling. And I very much appreciate all y'all listening. And, you know, we really appreciate all the positive and negative feedback. Honestly, the best feedback I get is from my wife when she says, you know, y'all really should do this instead. I mean, I think that's extremely helpful. So any sort of feedback that y'all have, we greatly appreciate it. We do this for the listeners. We're we're a part of the Baylor football community. We love football. We love talking ball. But ultimately, it's about providing something valuable for everyone. So appreciate all the feedback. Thank you all for listening. And with that said, let's get into part one of the Baylor 2022 season preview. Welcome back to another episode of the TD Pod. My name is Travis Roeder here with Jeff Davis. We are starting the beginning of an eight-hour podcast about the Baylor Bears in the 2022 season. I almost said 2021. I don't know what it is. Maybe, Jeff, is it as you get older, you just start to forget what year it is, how old you are, all that kind of stuff. But I mean, it does. I, I turned 40 in two months, and you could easily convince me that it's like still February somehow. Like, I, I don't – I can't I, – <laughs> I don't really know where the summer went. It's the end of August and it feels like, honestly, it kind of feels like it's like late April, early May. Like I don't, even though it's been a hot summer, I mean, you just, you get older and the time just, it just goes, man. So, well, thankfully the time has gone and we are approaching week one, Albany. Um, You know, I, this isn't an Albany preview. This is a Baylor season preview. So this team this year, I, 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 Jeff, you know, I've been kind of just, uh, you know, like a, like a freaking hamster on a wheel, basically just consuming whatever's in front of me day after day, all summer, all off season. This team is fascinating. Uh, I I think it all goes back to, I don't remember what podcast it was, whether it was the big 12 title preview or the, you know, if we did a a Ole Miss game preview last year, but this all goes back to when you were used the P word We're we're not using the full word anymore now that we're approaching the season, but this was something that before the end of last year, you were talking about the P word for the 2022 Bears. You know, why did you have that sense towards the end of the last season? How is how is um, how have your expectations and general vibes for this team adjusted over the offseason? And are you in the same point than you were then? I am. Um, I, I can tell you actually pretty clearly when when it pinpointed because. It's it's really easy if you're sitting at home listening to this to just kind of, or particularly if you're an opposing fan, because there's going to be a couple of opposing fans, that TCU fans that are hate listening to this, or Texas fans, or something. But and so I like I can I could preemptively hear the objections to this that are geared around us being a homer, and I you know what I completely understand those. Um, but there was a moment last year 
right after the UT game that I was speaking to you and a couple of our friends. And, you know, I'll just be honest about this. Uh, I was, um, I didn't think that they would be able to do what they did the last month of the season. But my comment was there was a path there basically between the Texas game and the Big 12 title game that if this coaching staff was kind of as good as we hoped they would be, I think that every fan thinks that they hoped it could be, that there was a path to them winning the Big 12 title. And that seemed kind of impossible, particularly coming out of the TCU game. Um, But you could see the outlines of what this team could kind of turn into because a thing that I, that fans really, particularly with college teams, the amount of growth that happens for a team between let's say September 1st and like Thanksgiving is astronomical. I mean, it is astronomical. And so you're really, you know, modern NFL teams really look at it as four, four game seasons. You'll hear that phrase sometimes, which is we're in four, four game seasons over the course of the full season. And our goal is to optimize coming into the last two seasons of the year or whatever those blocks are called. College doesn't quite have that because non-cons tend to be a little bit easier. And then, you know, the strength of schedule gets moved around. It's not as consistent. But that's a little bit of a long-winded way of saying that teams are well-coached teams. Let's be clear on that. Well-coached teams that don't suffer catastrophic injury issues tend to be significantly better in the month of November than they were in September. And we saw that growth last year and to what, to a degree that to be blunt, I was, I was surprised by. Um, And I think it's okay to say that out loud because based off the 2020 season, you know, the 2020 season wasn't great at all. There were absolutely some major extenuating circumstances. I was upfront about those at the time that I did not think that was a good first year to judge him, but it was still a lot of warning signs of like, Hey, this could, this could go South. Um, and they knocked it out of the park and there's just no other way to put it. I mean, they outside of really, I think some interior OL issues against TCU that coincided with some defensive line issues against TCU I mean, it just considering some of the limitations that they had offensively last year, I don't think that it could have gone better. There are not a lot of staffs that I can think of that could pull that trick off. Okay. And this is not like, I'm not trying to get into the art browse debate, but like, that never happened or art. I mean, it just did not, the team did not experience that type of growth. The team would hit certain offensive peaks based on health throughout the course of the season where everything lined up and they were unstoppable, but the team never got better in the way that we saw, uh, I think Baylor in 2019 with the staff that is now in the NFL, even if that may not be for long at this point, but that happened in 2019 and that happened again in 2021 and all the ingredients are there again for something similar this year. Um, the second reason that I'll, I'll state this and I want to be very clear about how I phrase this, but at, at the college level, um, I know I've used this analogy before, but line play is kind of like table stakes. Okay. Offensive and defensive line is not enough to win you a game unless you are basically playing someone that's so overmatched, it doesn't matter. And so it's, you think of it like sitting at a poker table where if, if, you know, if the stakes are high enough, you can't really play in the game because if you, you know, one hand and you don't get the cards and you're out, it's that kind of a thing. But Baylor has the offensive and defensive lines to be competitive in a playoff game for the first time in my life. And I don't know that that'll be the case next year. I don't think they'll be there on the offensive line. Um, 
and they probably won't be there on the defensive line next year as well because like they're going to have too many young guys. But for the for 2022, they do have that. Now that doesn't mean they're going to make the playoffs. It doesn't mean they're even going to win 10 games. It does mean that if they were to get into a game against Alabama or Georgia or Ohio State right now, um, they wouldn't have to run junk. And so when you watch a Washington or a Notre Dame or uh, Oklahoma, quite frankly, almost every year except for one that I can think of, when those teams get into those bigger games, it becomes immediately obvious that one part of their line um, can't hold up. Like they just they can't stay in the game against the other team, and so immediately they're running junk. They're you know they're doing blitzes, they're doing run blitzes on standard downs because they can't stop the run, or they're having to do a lot of quick game and like screen action stuff to get rid of to to avoid the pass rush and a bunch of other things. Baylor won't have to do that. It doesn't mean that they'll have the team to win those games, To again, to reiterate that, but they will have the line play to stay in those games. And that's not something that a lot of teams can say. And I just, honestly, it, it's very few. I think Baylor, honestly, is the only, it's the reason why I lean towards Baylor being in the Big 12 title game, despite having a significantly more difficult schedule, is that, I don't see another team in the league that has the combination of offensive and defensive lines that Baylor does. You know, even going into the BYU game, they're going to be able to lean on that. Like they're going to be able to lean on their lines to protect the secondary. They're going to be able to lean on the lines to to protect Blake Shapen. Like that stuff that really, really matters when you're trying to warm up a team to to get to where you want them to be in November. And that those two things combined for me right now. You know, I look at the coaching staff, which I mean, it's it's an outstanding coaching staff. It's not the best coaching staff in Baylor history, but it is it's still outstanding. Um, and I look at the I look at the players on the team, and I kind of look at honestly. And I'm not this is not trying to say like it's a vibes thing, but when you look at the way that that team appears to be competing with each other, um, and the way that they're going and approaching practice, it's very different than what we've seen a lot of teams in the past. And it just, everything kind of lines up to me for if they can avoid some of basically a few crushing injuries, they're going to be in a really good spot to win 10 plus games. And if then they get lucky, then they're looking at the playoffs. And I, I think we'll, I think I could say that word for this podcast and I won't say it again, <laughs> okay. the preview. but that path is there. And Baylor's also had, you know, a thing that I, I, I am. I'm going to pause right there because I don't, I don't want to turn this into like monologue because I am really excited to finally be able to like talk about all this after like yeah. going through position, going through position. But, you know, I, to, to start it off with a bang, like I, you know, if Baylor won less than eight games this year, I'd be pretty disappointed. I really would. And it's a much more difficult schedule. I think that's probably also something that's worth pointing out to the fan at home as we start to really get into this is I do think that the team this year is I think the team this is going to be better this year than last year. And I think this team is probably going to be better than the 2023 team. But, but I don't know that, but I think that right now. But at the same token, this is by far the hardest schedule of the three seasons. So it's it's not difficult at all for me to see a scenario where this team goes like nine and three, barely misses out on the Big 12 title game, and is somehow a little is better than last year's team and is worse than next year's team because the schedule is so much more difficult this year than any other year that we've had. This is the most difficult schedule Baylor has I, that I can think of for Baylor since honestly, like the 2005, 2006 range when Oklahoma and Texas were both top 10 teams and Oklahoma state and tech and A&M were all basically the old big 12 South where 
you had two top 10 teams and then three more teams in the top 25. Like that's the last time Baylor has played a schedule. That's going to be as hard as what they're going to play this year. Man, there, there are literally like 11 different strings or threads. I yeah. want to pull out that's of that. Like a, of all like a, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think I've thought of three or four questions, but you know, we got to lean into it, Jeff. And this, this conversation will go where it goes. Um, really, obviously the entire idea here is to kind of keep this, this season at the forefront um, a couple of different things here, though, that I, I want to start with. Um, first, I, I went back and found that uh, a, me- a message that I'm not sure if this is the one exactly you were thinking of, but I, I think looking back on previous years and, and what you were thinking at certain points is very, very helpful for kind of um, correlating and comparing to how you feel in the present w- when you consider the current variable. So I found this message that you sent um, after the Iowa State game, and I'm just going to read a portion of it because I want to hear your thoughts on, uh, well, I just want to hear your thoughts on your own thoughts, basically, for for what happened. So uh, here, this is, this is going to take probably 30 seconds or a minute to read here. So you said this was after the Iowa State game. You said, there is a possible path for this defense to be better than the 2019 defense. The defense didn't really... That defense didn't really take the leap from great to elite until after the West Virginia game at Halloween. Uh, excuse me, um, until that West Virginia game yeah. at Halloween coming off a of bye week, not coincidentally. That secondary was not as good as this current one and survived on elite defensive line play and a second level that just knew where to be, meaning those guys like, um, you know, Clay Johnston, Terrell Bernard, Jordan Williams, Blake Lynch. Um, if the defense stays where it is now, this is a top 25 or 30 defense, depending on how good the linebacker play gets over the rest of the season that could get up to a top 15 defense. Anything past that would require something like hall or Randolph turning into day pick day two picks in the next two months. So sidebar here, this turned into a top 10 defense. I think we saw hall and Randolph both play very well. And I think we probably saw a few other additional things that you weren't expecting as well. And finally you said, UT is the game coming off a of bye week going into a crucial Aranda era defining to stretch. I would expect them to struggle with alignments for the next three games, but UT, that's the game that if this staff is really as good as we think it is, they absolutely put the clamps on. So interesting for me to lead you into here. That's the end of Jeff's comments. I don't know if I would just say that they put the clamps on in that UT game uh, because the first half wasn't great, but the way that they responded in that second half and then basically for nearly every game after that, you know, minus the TCU debacle, um, you know, what are your thoughts there on, on kind of the progression of the team over, over last season? So it, I think I was, I almost start with where I was wrong. Um, I was wrong on, what it would take to get to a top 10 defense because hall last year was not a was not a day two pick um i, I think what the, where they really excelled in where was in two areas the first one was cole maxwell stayed healthy um and i think you know he had he had he's always a little banged up but what he brings to the defense from his ability to control the man in front of them and just kind of honestly, like sh- between him and Ica, they really kind of shut down one half of the offensive line to the point where you just can't run at him right now. And I just, that, that, a lot, that gives, that gave Roberts a lot of flexibility with how he wanted to um, move the linebackers around because they could just, they, I mean, Roberts just didn't have to worry about, the west side of the line. I mean, he just didn't. And so that gave them a lot of flexibility to move the linebackers around to kind of cover up for the other side. But I think the other thing that really, the two things that really stand out for me, the first one was Petrie 
Petrie was a day two pick. I, I'll be honest with the start. I thought he was a stud at the start of last season. I didn't think he was a day one or day two pick. I thought it was a day three pick and he played himself into that. Um, that, uh, that was, that was a huge, 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 huge portion of that. The other one though, would be really, I would kind of credit Robertson Aranda for being able to generate a pass rush out of the jacks that they had. And I think the reason that the reason that Jones was at the Jack last year, and I believe Roberts has spoken about this, which is that that was their best 11. And so they're, you know, they're going to try to find a way to put the best 11 on the field. And last year that was, that was uh, Matt Jones, you know, playing a lot of Jack this year. It's not because their Jack depth has gotten significantly better than it was in 2020 and even last year. And so what, what they were able to do, with Jones at the Jack and with Bernard was even if they didn't have stud pass rushers on the DL, they were able to kind of manufacture um, a contain and a pass rush out of four with kind of alignment um, that just mass some ability, maybe masked a little bit of lack of pass natural pass rush ability from some of the guys in the front seven. And I think really strongly back to the, 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 the jump, and I, I will, I'll say this very concretely. The jump between the TCU game and the OU game from the defensive line is one of the most impressive things I've ever seen, honestly, because the defensive line played did not play particularly well against Texas, and they played badly against TCU. That was that was my interpretation of that. Now, I, I there, you know, the secondary didn't play great against um, against UT, but you know they played they played they definitely played well enough to win. The growth between, though, going back from, yeah, TCU to OU was just honestly unbelievable. I mean, it really was. That was the week that uh, Joey left for Tech. There was a lot going on that week. I had very, like, I had hopes they could do it. But, I mean, it's kind of like fan hopes. It's not realistic hopes. And then they pulled off and made good on the fan hope, which just really blew, honestly kind of blew my mind. Um, And if you think, we talked about this a lot, but back in that game, you know, if I can see it, the guys on staff can see it. I mean, I'm not, there's nothing that I'm going to ever say on this podcast that any person working for Baylor football doesn't know a thousand times better than I do. But it was really obvious that Caleb Williams wanted to go right. Like if you've watched any of his games, that's what he did. He he couldn't sit in the pocket. He just wanted to go right. And then once he broke contain right, he was, he is a speed demon and he's got a lot of natural arm talent and the game, you know, the field cuts in half and he can just use his athleticism and just kind of cook and make plays. He's like, you know, he's a future Russell Wilson is, is the, is the player he reminds me of. But, um, what they did against OU was they just said, well, okay, well, you can't go right. Like, we'll figure it out. We'll, we're going to move you off your spot and you can't go right. And then we don't think you're going to be able to do it. And he couldn't do it. And so the knowledge and the ability to implement that game plan during the, during a college week, I think that really is an underrated aspect for a team that is game planning because so much of college football is this is you know and you think about what they do on offense it's saying which is like this is the stuff we run this is our base and we're going to try to layer on a few things custom to the opponent but we very rarely are going to try to put in like full-on in-depth complex game plans or attacks based on the opponent because you don't have enough time to do it for a lot of these kids and they were able to not only were they able to get one in, they were able to execute it well. And that was the key for me of why the Oklahoma game was so 
sublime is almost the only word I can think of. Because when you looked at the issues from the TCU game exactly seven days ago, you went, they got to do better at, you know, A, B, C, and then they need to work a little bit on D and E. But, you know, it's a week later, they're, you know, whatever. And then a week later, they were significantly better at A, B, and C, and they had worked on D and E. And to see that and be able to get that output a week later, that speaks to a quality of the organization that Baylor football has right now from Dave Aranda on down. You know, Aranda, that, that's not just uh, – it's Aranda in that he's started to put the culture and the organization in place to do that. But that's a lot of – I mean, that is, you know – graduate assistants and that is offensive analysts and defensive analysts and you know guys that we don't know the names of and fans would never know if they walked up to them on the street and training staff and like on and on and on that all kind of come together to produce that level of play a week later and so that like that Oklahoma game I thought I thought they would do it by the UT game because typically that those type of jumps happen after bye weeks so that the audience knows, particularly at the college level, like you're going to take that first week off because you want to rest your bodies. You know, you want to do some self scouting, you want to get better um, and you're going to work a lot on fundamentals. And so because you've got that time to kind of quote unquote, go into the lab and like try to figure out what's going on, you're typically like those mid October to late October bye weeks the week after is the week where you can usually look at a team and go, this is not the finished product, but this is within the ballpark of what the finished product is going to look like. And so I was, I think I was a little surprised that it took a little bit longer, but I also, you know, I'm not in the room. There could have been injury issues that we don't know about that, that contributed to that. It could have been, you know, the coaching staff might've just got something wrong on what they were focusing on for a couple of weeks. I mean, it just, there's too many variables to name, but I was wrong on the timeline, but I do feel pretty confident overall that like seeing them against Iowa State and seeing the mistakes that they made, so many of those mistakes were correctable. And you could see, like, because we know what these guys are capable of athletically, if they can correct the mistakes, even if they don't have all the instincts, you can get to this kind of top 10 to 15 defense, which is where they settled out last year. I think something that'll be really fun to see, you know, obviously um, after the BYU game, really more than after Albany. Um, is as you talked about on the last pod, like who this team is in the first month of the season is not even, you know, it, it's going to be close to who they are by the end of the season, but th- there's just going to be so much different about them um, because teams just progress and grow so much over the year. And I think it's really fun with Aranda as the head coach that he, you know, you just have to watch him speak for a few minutes to know this guy is relentlessly introspective. He's always asking how he can better himself and better those around him, improve things, make things more efficient, optimize things, really. But I think I wrote an article about this today on on Second 365, kind of breaking down that. uh, I'll pump it up. It's a very good article. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, and you know, it was about the Berenstein Bears, old hat, new hat thing. And, you know, it. I was trying to what I was trying to gather there is that this wasn't just like a funny saying that Arana came up with. It was really a perfect distillation of of what he sees, I think, his role as a coach is. Because I I think one of the funny comments I get sometimes when I write articles is um I've had this happen a few times where people will be like, Whoa, like, you know, you're breaking down the scheme here. Now opposing coaches can look at it and know how Baylor does X, Y, or Z. And I'm just like you guys don't understand yeah. like all they, this stuff they, is yeah. you just have to search it on YouTube and you can figure out like how all this stuff is done. You know exactly what this player's reading. You know exactly what the key is like. That's not what it, that's not what determines what great football is like. 
when we talk about coaches like Aranda who are at the leading edge of scheme, it's not necessarily what they can drop on a chalkboard. It's how they can translate that chalkboard into rules that they can implement for their players in a very limited amount of time in the offseason and during the season. That is the kind of special attitude. It's kind of like, you know, you can read a you can read a leadership book, but just because you read the leadership book doesn't mean that you can go in and be a great leader um, within a company and then execute the vision or what have you. So I think it's, it's fun to see that Aranda is what he's famous for in coaching circles is having this defensive playbook, always being on the on the leading edge of what teams are doing schematically. But he's somehow able to translate that into very, very simple rules for his kids to learn. And then as we saw last season, he's able to say after the TCU game, our pass rush sucked. Um, guys weren't really executing these techniques. We probably haven't been working on them hard enough. Here's A, B, C, D, E, and E, and, e, and uh, it's going to be fixed a week later. That is just something that no other college coach that I can think I mean, I shouldn't say no other college coach. I don't know. I'm sure there are some great ones out there um, who are really, really good at doing that. But I think, you know, if you were if you were doing a player attribute rating or a coach attribute rating, Aranda's ability to identify identify the weak areas and then improve on them as quickly as possible in a way that other coaches seemingly aren't able to do as efficiently is really at the top of what makes him great. Yeah. On that, I'll make a comment on that. That that was something that Bob Stoops was actually excellent at. And, but the thing about a, a Bob Stoops, a Bob Stoops coach team when he was not, not, you know, last year in the bowl game, but y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, is they were always very good at you know they they won a ton of games but even in games where they would win by ten or twenty they you know they would be they would do something poorly in that game and then the week later even you know they they might still win by ten or twenty but that particular thing that they weren't good at the week before usually was fixed and so that was something that Bob Stoops was always honestly really really good at there are other staffs that do it well but he was always the guy that I think of because a lot of that that's one of those things where when you lose you know, oh, we, we got to fix this. We got to fix this. One of the things that made Stoops so great was they won a lot of games, but he was still able to kind of grow those things. Um, the other comment I'll make is because it's such great radio uh, for us to read Twitter accounts, but there's a Twitter account called uh, Honest NFL that oh, yeah. is run by, and you know, there's a, it's run by an anonymous, I believe anonymous ex uh, NFL QB. And um, he either works for an organization and that's why he's private or he wants to work for an organization and that's why he's anonymous. One of those two, I'm not real sure which, but um, he has, he's in love with Aranda and he, he had a, he had a, had some comments recently that basically was that if you, if you want to learn defense, if you want a preparatory, basically a college, college preparatory experience for NFL defense, basically the three guys that you would want to go play for are Dave Aranda, Dave Aranda, Ron Roberts, that kind of combo, or Saban, or um, Kirby. Like, that's pretty rarefied air. And that's, honestly, it's true. Like, he is able, Aranda has spent not a lot of energy not just looking at the chalkboard, but even when you look at some of their, their, their um, install sheets, like the way that he will, for example, like color codes the zone areas so that you know when you're looking at something like he's able to color code the zone areas so that you can follow the rule combinations without having to read them at the bottom. And you can tell that he has spent an enormous amount of time like pouring over like 
PowerPoint, trying to make sure that he is comfortable that the colors like show a progression and urgency. Like it's even to that level. Like a yellow is is co- if you're a linebacker, yellow might be coded for like this is the secondary most important thing, while the red is the danger zone. Like he color codes them based off positions sometimes, so that guys know how to um, guys know how to read just based off the colors. And that 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 seems like a small thing, but he does that with kind of everything. And so he and Roberts have spent an enormous amount of time really trying to figure out how to teach this stuff. And that's, that's where this really shines through is they are by the end of the year last year, you know, they're not really blowing coverages. They're able to get these installs in. And so I I think that the evidence of that also leads me to what I think they'll be able to do a concern of ours that we have certainly shared is um, secondary play uh, on the defense. And, I, you know, under the previous regime of rule, this is not to knock rule at all, but the way that they taught defense was to teach offense first. And so it was very difficult, particularly for a secondary player to come in and play in that Phil Snow defense. I mean, it really did take a year to a year and a half of almost game reps or being on the 2D before you really knew that system. Um, That's not the case with, the Roberts and Aranda system. Now, these guys are not going to come out of the gate knowing every single call like the back of their hands. But as opposed to just sometime like in the middle of 2023, some of these new cats, particularly at safety, like being able to execute those rules, like it's not going to take that long. Like they can yeah. get these installs in quicker than they could under Matt Rule. Um, so I just want a quick interjection here, Jeff. Yeah, An yep. example of like the, how he simplifies installs. I was watching a clinic of his the other day. And he was talking about uh, their main versions of quarters coverage. Uh, what that is, you can listen to the last podcast. It's not really that important, but here's just an example. So he has a couple of different versions. One of them is called Hammer, and another one is called Red Hammer. Um, and there's more beyond that, but those are just two of the examples. And he just kind of threw out there, he was like, look, anytime a corner hears Hammer, that means he's playing loose man coverage. And he just kind of went on to something else. But I was like, oh, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like these are two different versions of corner of quarters coverage and the safety and the other guy are going to do something different, but it's a really easy rule to just tell the corner. Okay. If you hear the word hammer, that means that you're doing this and you can kind of, I think, extrapolate that throughout the rest of the defenses too. He's always thinking about how do I do as many things as possible while making it as easy as possible for the players to understand. I just thought that was a good example. Yeah, it is. So I have a question for you here, Jeff. Um, What does it mean Let's let's take this question specifically from the offensive side of the ball because I think it means different things on both sides of the ball. But when we talk about this team leading from up front, this is a team who brings back you know four out of five offensive linemen. They bring back their top two tight ends. Um, you know, in an era where where you know passing is king, we're having a quarterback who doesn't turn the ball over and who could throw consistently, accurately, protect the ball, all those kind of things. Having downfield threats, all that we would recognize massively important. So what does it mean to actually lead an offensive from up front? I mean, is this, you know, is it an anachronism to do so? Like, what is that by Baylor? Uh, would you rather have all their skill talent back? You know, if you had to choose between the two, um, you know, why does you talked about so much about why you think having these elite level line play is so important for their aspirations. So why does it get you get you so far there? That's a great question. I well, because offensive linemen are just, you know, they're awesome. So, you know, I just put 11 <laughs> offensive linemen on the field, you're going to win the game. I mean, it's just pretty obvious. Um, I would give 
I know he's not going to listen to this, but if Eric Mateos was listening to this, I would love to see like one five-man service against Albany just because that would make me so happy. But sorry, that's very <laughs> much like out of nowhere. Um, it, it does two things. The first one is when you run, when you can run the ball and there's been a lot of work, statistical analysis. And I say this as someone that studied a lot of math in college and does a lot of math. Well, not as much now because now I just manage people and I'm boring, but that has done a lot of math professionally. The statistical reasoning behind basically never running the ball, it doesn't doesn't really capture why you want to run the ball. And one of the reasons that there's a few reasons why you want to run the ball, but the biggest one I think really is a organizational commitment to physicality. And it's, it's something that people hear coaches say, and it kind of just bounces off of you. Um, if you're watching hard knocks at all with the Detroit lions, um, you'll see, you'll see a team that's really committing to, the physicality of football in a way that not a lot of teams do. Um, at the college level, that shows out in a couple of ways, but the biggest way is with, honestly, the offensive line. Because your offensive line is going to set the tone in the running game. It's going to set the tone um, both in pass coverage. It's going to be able to really, like, it, the offensive line is, even though it's protecting the skill position players behind them, it's really like a shield that you use to bash people with. And more so than just like retreating and trying to fend off blows, if you can step out with that shield and really just like pound people into the ground, that develops a physicality and an attitude on your team that it may sound to, you know, to some people that are listening to this, they're going to roll their eyes and say, that's a little ridiculous. You know, that's not how that works. All this kind of stuff. It, it really does. And it just, I, I, it's, there's something, I wish there was a way to quantify that mathematically. Right. I haven't seen, I haven't seen a good statistic for it. Um, and if there is one, please find it for me, but it's not something that I've ever seen. Like DVOA doesn't capture that from football outsiders. EPA does not capture this. Like it just, it does not capture what the psychological impact of being able to pick up four yards or five yards on a first and 10 when the other team knows you're going to run the ball that it, it changes so many aspects of the game from like how the defense has to be called to what they're afraid of, to how they want to approach things. I mean, it just, it really does. It changes the calculus of what you can do when you can impose what you're doing through um, through really an offensive line. The second thing, though, really from a schematic standpoint, would be they're going to be able to they're going to be able to let Blake Shapen kind of sit back more, you know, and just from a more simplistic and like maybe an easier way and not quite so esoteric way, um, they're going to be able to run the ball without GB, which they needed him to generate that extra gap next uh, last year, and they should be able to execute a drop back game without the need to do a play action. You know, and if they can do those two things, then they can run the complete offense. But it's also, I think Baylor fans, Baylor fans have been conditioned to a certain kind of offensive line play under Art Bryles that wasn't always genuine. And I think the reason I say that is that so much of the Art Bryles offensive line experience was really generated off of pace. 
And when you watch those guys practice back in like 2013, or for example, um, you know, they just, they, they like sprinted up and down the field. Like they would run a play, offense would move the ball five yards, run it, you know, run the next play, run the next play, run the next play. It was pace, 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 pace. And defenders were like, uh, like somebody standing on, like, like being a pummeled by, what'd you say? Yeah. Like a practice dummy. Yeah, well, I was gonna say like a like a like somebody standing on the beach in a storm, and just like like every time they'd get pummeled by a wave, they stand back up again and just get like swept under the water. They stand up again and swept under the water. Like that's what it was like, you know, being a defender when it's a hundred degrees and you're running at that kind of pace. Yeah, and so the, the, my favorite example of this is the Cotton Bowl game against Michigan State. Um, Baylor's offensive line got annihilated in that game. And it like they, I think they had a grand total of like 30 yards of rushing, something like that. I mean, it just, they could not run the ball. And they lost, I've I, I ran it on this a bunch of times, but the reason they lost the game is they couldn't run the ball. That's why they couldn't run out the clock in the second half and why the other team came back. At no point in that game was the offensive line able to stand up against Michigan State. They just got honestly run over. And it was a lot of deep shot bombs to generate offense and try to hope that those explosive plays could keep them in the game and it created I think a little bit of a false narrative around what that offense was capable of because I don't outside of the OU game I think in 2014 I don't recall a game that they were able to play against a high-end front seven where they didn't struggle and that's you know if you take that out of the equation you know Baylor didn't have a great offensive line to rule it's just it's going to have been a very long time since Baylor fans have seen anything like what they're going to see in 2022 from an offensive line standpoint. So much of offensive line play can kind of be schemed around. And I think honestly a little bit about tech this year, like what tech's gonna try to do, not to gin to the preview, but you know, Kitty's gonna run a lot of uh Kittle Kitty, I can't remember. Um, is gonna run a lot of plays. And like the way that their offense is designed and what I've seen from them is just like they want to get the ball out fast. Like that's the primary goal. And the uh, to be able to alleviate the fact that their offensive line is not going to be very good this year. Baylor won't have to do that. And so when you can like run just like a normal running back screen, I mean, that just, that sounds really dumb because you're like, that's just a screen. But like if you can execute that play, then all of a sudden, you know, the Oklahoma State game, I think we mentioned this in the pod last year. If they could have regularly executed a screen game last year, the Oklahoma State game is they win by 20 if they could re- if they could reliably execute that play you know what i mean and the there's there's just a lot that Baylor's going to ask their offensive line to do this year because they asked them to do so much last year and i think they're going to put even just as much on them this year to really get the full install in where we're going to look up i think in october and go they are the record they have is because they can do some really outrageous things with the offensive line that other teams just can't do you know right. And that being able, I think running a screen game is a really good example of that. You know, what, uh, this is a very, no one else is going to remember this play, but against Texas in 2017, rules first year. Yeah, you, you know the one I'm talking about, I think, oh, right yeah. now. The, uh, the, first off, that was as a side I note. The, I had the end zone view of that play, and I thought it was going to be Baylor's only touchdown. And then oh. you describe it. Describe. Oh, it was. It's just. It's so. Oh man, it's so painful. So uh, the, the they had it was like a third and. It was it was a passing down situation on third. Um, Baylor got a Baylor dialed up a screen against a UT, a, really a dumb UT blitz is really a great phrase. It. UT that was Todd Orlando back then, right? Yeah, Todd, Todd Orlando and Baylor had 
the perfect screen call out. I think it was Hasty. I don't recall no, though I think for it sure. It was Ebner, I think. It's Ebner. Okay. But he caught the ball and he caught the ball on like the Baylor 35. Yeah. And he turns around and he's looking north into the end zone. There is there are three Baylor offensive linemen in front of him. There is one UT defender between him and like 65 or 70 yards of grass for a touchdown. Okay. This defender, like it, you could have almost pulled out like any random man under the age of 55 <laughs> probably could have executed one of these blocks because the only thing they had to do was just like foil their bodies onto them. But they they don't they don't run that play that often. And so somehow all three of these guys thought someone else was supposed to pick this block up. And this guy walks through three Baylor defenders to tackle Ebner for like a loss on a play that should have been the like easiest touchdown that Ebner ever scored in his life. And I like that's the that's the type of play that when you have seasoned senior yeah. Our upperclassmen offensive linemen that have been running those plays for a long time, like you can run that stuff. Like Notre Dame ran that stuff under Brian Kelly, and they honestly they will maybe not this year, but they'll get to that at LSU. Um, but when you have really high quality offensive line play, other teams can't like they don't other teams don't practice against that because their offensive linemen can't do it. And so being able to execute those type of plays per game or like a consistent wide zone or being able to consistently get your guys on defensive backs in this league, uh, that's the type of thing where even if you don't have the world's greatest running back or you don't have the world's greatest wide receivers or anything like that, like there's just not a lot you can do if you're a safety coming downhill to like try to blow up a screenplay and um, there's 310 pounds of Mo's you know, like right on top of you and he's executing a block. There's just nothing you can do. Like you're outweighed by a hundred pounds. You're not going to, you're not stopping that guy in the hole. You're not beating him off. So my body, that's a turn of phrase right there. Um, sorry. <laughs> the, uh, like you're not beating him. You're not beating him off the spot to the block. That's what I'm going to say. And so being able to rely on that type of thing, what, instead of hoping that you can complete it, which is a, where a lot of teams go with their offensive line, which is we know we can block the initial two yards of this run play, mm -hmm. But if we're lucky, our offensive linemen are going to be able to execute. They're going to be able to, you know, climb to the next level. And I always heard the phrase chase paint. I don't know what Mateos calls it, but chasing paint, which is like you execute on your initial block and then you chase it to the second level just to find a guy to get a body on to like keep the play going. Just keep blocking, keep that energy going. Um, a lot of times at college, you're just kind of crossing your fingers and like hoping that stuff works out. Um they're going to be able to rely on that like NFL teams do. This is not to say that they're an NFL team. Don't don't put that out there. Please don't cut that out and be like Jeff Davis said that Baylor is an NFL offensive line. That's not the case. I, but Just real quick, Jeff, I actually think this would be a great example, though. You know how sometimes you see the stupid stuff of like, would the worst NFL team be able to beat the best college team? I think, you know, obviously there would be a million reasons the NFL team would win, but one of them would yeah. be because that NFL offensive line could literally just have their running back run for eight yards a carry because they would be able yes. to block every single person in that front. Like, yeah, like it was nothing. So. Yeah. And that, but yeah, th that a hundred percent. And so they're going to be able to build things into the game plan that they weren't able to do last year and that I don't think any other team is going to be able to reliably do this year. Maybe TCU. I'm not, I don't really know where their offensive line is at. I, I haven't had a chance to really look at them in depth, but they're one team that I thought maybe could do it. I 
I kind of like their coaching staff, so I, I'm a little bit more optimistic for them. Taking out the rivalry stuff, just looking at, you know, who they have in, in a vacuum. Um, but, you know, like Texas, Texas is not going to be able to do any of that stuff this year. I mean, even if that was part of their run game, you know, they have a bunch of injuries and they got freshmen on the offensive line. They've got a freshman that's probably going to start at left tackle. Like, they, you know, they can't, they can't do any of that stuff. It's all quick setting and going forward and going backward. You know, the bicycle blocking is we've kind of, called a little derisively like you're either going forward or you're going backward but that's it um they the offensive line is going to be able to protect and build into the scheme in ways they weren't able to before so jeff what i wanted to get into now is you know we just talked about how it's it's not necessarily an anachronism to run an offense through an offensive line right um i think i think generally what you were trying to say is or not trying to say excuse me what you perfectly said is that Um, (laughs) what you were getting at is basically that there's kind of a lot of externalities um, that aren't neatly captured in data for what having a reliable and good offensive line gives you and so where in that do you add in the aspect of you know when we think about how this is such a quarterback centric quarterback centric game um what exactly does you know reliable protection being able to execute in the ground game give a quarterback like Blake Shapin who is turnover prone but we think can kind of play with some guardrails in this offense? Do you think you know what do you foresee as far as his ability to kind of temper those you know possible turnovers and is a, the offensive line a big part of that? So the offensive line is a big part of that to address the first question. Uh, it, quarterbacks tend to make turnovers in really kind of two areas in, in, in for the most part. The first one is they, they think they can the, – and the biggest one that will affect shaping is they think they can make a throw when they can't. Um, quarterbacks make, make misreads. I mean, that does happen, and you'll, you throw it to a guy you didn't see or, you know, you'll do something like that. But that actually I, – I think, I think that happens less than people really think it does because for those things to usually happen, usually you have to throw into a zone – you're looking to throw into a zone player that you don't – you're not expecting. Uh, most interceptions really come because you're forcing a ball where it doesn't need to go and there's no other option. Chapin's going to make those turnovers. is going to make those plays. I know that we – I know that we had a discussion, I think a week or two ago, about how many interceptions we thought Shapin might throw in 2022. I feel pretty comfortable it's going to be double digits. I just, that, and that doesn't really bother me. You know, I don't know that you want to turn off his ability to be aggressive on some plays. I, you know, a throw that I really think back to was, I think it was TT for the third touchdown in the second quarter of the Big 12 game where he went on that fade route on like oh, second, yeah. second and long. And, you know, yep. and honestly, like, it's a dangerous ball because you're throwing over the quarter cornerback. I mean, you're trying to get it into one spot, but you leave that ball two inches short, and that's a 40-yard pass. I mean, you leave that anywhere from two to three inches short from where he did, and that's a pick. And, right. you know, I mean, that's the whole game at the end of the day. I mean, so, I mean, you want – you want Shapin to have the confidence to make that throw in that moment, and you live with some of the other interceptions. Um, the other thing, though, is particularly with having for younger quarterbacks, the offensive line will really help with is having the internal clock sped up. And that's something that I think GB really struggled with last year that I don't think that Shapin will have to deal as much with because he's not going to have as much pressure at his feet. Uh, when you get a quarterback's head's basically their head sped up. The two things you really want to avoid as you're the quarterback coaches, you want to try to get get you want your QB to be able to go through usually usually two progressions on the front side and then like one on the back side. That right. that's the <clears throat> 
is usually a two to three read, uh, two to three reads. Um, moving too quickly through those means that oftentimes if you get to number two before they're expected to break open, even if they are open, you got to them too quickly, and then right. you can kind of run through your progression ahead of schedule, and you miss open guys, and then the play's dead because you just move through them too quickly, and you can't come back on them. Um, but and we we just don't we don't really know until the game starts. I'm sorry, y'all are hearing my ten week old brand new cocker spaniel puppy in the background. Oh, All right, uh, what's his name? Uh, that is that is Biscuit the cocker. So I biscuit is very loud, and I'm gonna I, I'm going to move myself away from biscuit for a quick moment here. Um, <laughs> well, Jeff, I wanted to ask you about um, with you know <clears throat> Shapen's clock being sped up. This was something I kind of thought of on the fly when I was talking with Smokey on on the three six five radio show the other day. When I was talking about you know Aranda mentioned to me how it's been tough to evaluate the wide receivers and the the defensive backs ability to play the ball downfield this fall because the defensive line has been getting so good at getting pressure on the quarterback and not just the defensive line, but the whole defensive front. Uh, I think Dave in the press conference said something like, you know, I can't even tell you how many different pressures Ron is using right now. And then he kind of funnily said, you know, I'm sure Mateos could tell you exactly how many. And um, so I've kind of got a two part question here. One um, and this is what I brought up to Smokey is I'm curious to see in the BYU game. I mean, obviously Albany game aside, when Blake has time to throw, you know, is that something that we we should really be watching for in that game? You know, has that internal clock been sped up throughout fall camp to where he maybe has forgotten what it's like to have a clean pocket? And the second aspect that you can get into after that is I've talked a lot about how like how stupid Gary Patterson was because he would famously you know him and Rex Ryan and these other guys they would blitz on the first day of fall camp and kind of throw the whole defensive playbook at the offensive guy on the first day and not even get the offense um you know time to get their their, their feet underneath them I doubt that that's what's happening under Randy here especially because he's so cognizant of that being an issue for wanting to kind of give both sides of the ball room to breathe um but what do you what do you think about that like as far as you know Blake's Blake's been facing this this attacking style defense all fall camp and how do you think they've been trying to balance that as a coaching staff for getting all of those different exotic pressures in while also trying to let the offense develop yeah i mean that's a great question i think it's tough to really answer that without being in the room i you know i what i would expect that they're doing is it even when even when the offense gets sped up and you and i guess to make this specific to blake you just can't simulate getting hit and and as much as it, it may seem it may seem like getting guys in your face could potentially speed you up when you're wearing that red no contact jersey like the QBs are uh, in the in in there your brain just never like you get used to the fact that you're not gonna get popped right. and even if the play dies there's not a moment where you feel your eye level drop and so I, I don't I don't particularly worry about his clock being sped up for Albany and honestly I don't really worry about it being sped up for BYU. Um, I think that that clock being sped up for him is going to happen as a result of issues on the OL play because that's just not what he sees. I do think it's for Shapen the issue is going to be he's going to be really aggressive on balls with on like second and six when he drops back where he's like, I want this 25 yards and I want it now. And he's going to try to fit a ball that maybe he shouldn't try to fit. I think that's the bigger concern with him more than necessarily 
so far that we've seen getting his getting his thought process sped up or really and then the second one of this and this was something that charlie brewer really struggled with in 2020 which was you get hit enough eventually your eye level drops and you can't get it back up and right. it takes a while to get it back up um that takes a long time even with all of gb struggles i don't think he really dealt with that last year the way that charlie did in uh, 2020 um that's usually not a thing that affects QBs their first year. It takes multiple years of getting hit hard before that happens. Um, This is kind of random, but I, you know, back in the nascent days of when the Texans first started, obviously I was, uh, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I was in junior high and high school at the time, but you know, I'm sure that's probably what happened to David Carr after a few years there, most likely. Right. that, That was my, that was my impression at the time. I mean, I was not as into football then as I was now, so I couldn't go back and tell you for sure, but I, that was my impression from watching him briefly. It was he just at a certain point his eye level dropped and he never could get it back up. Yeah, cool. So I mean, as to the second part of that question, how do you feel like how do you feel like they've been trying to balance that this camp? Uh, again, uh, it, it's total speculation. We're outside of the room, but you know this the Baylor's going to hang their hat on this defense this year, and part of that is adding a lot to their pressure packages. You know, as a staff, how do you think they're trying to balance that this fall camp? You're probably picking out, so your staff probably, probably, I don't know this. It'd be fun to get Mateos and Roberts in a room for like five minutes to listen to them complain about each other. So <laughs> they're like, it's been a good nature day, but it's, you know, it, those, there's a, uh, on Hard Knocks a couple episodes ago, they showed a picture of the, uh, or they showed some video feed of the defensive coordinator, Aaron Gwynn, going off on the running backs coach. And the two of them, they are best friends, best friends. Their wives must be so excited to get them out of the house because they are just screaming expletives at each other <laughs> for like a five minute reel about like every time the offense gets a play, they're you know he's he, they're running their mouths. Every time the defense makes a tackle, defense runs their mouths, and it just there's this there's this you know combativeness in a good way, this healthy competition that goes on there, and I, I, that is that that happens a lot at the college level between the coaches as well. Like they want to beat the other guys. Like the offense knows how good that defense is. And they know that like winning reps against that defensive front matters. Like it means something beyond like, you know, we just want to rep. Like it means we want to rep against a really good D. Um, I, wonder, I wonder how many times they've straight up run for just like eight yards on wide zone this fall camp. Like I wonder if it's like more than like fifteen times. <laughs> I mean, it just <laughs> that would be a great question. I really don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah, but to answer on the other one specifically, that I, I would be willing to bet, I don't know this, but I'd be willing to bet that they probably, before practice, you know, practice is highly scripted. Um, before practice, or in the pre-practice meeting, the coaches probably go over like, I need to get off XYZ plays from the offense to be able to execute against this front. And then the right. defense, okay, so for, you know, the the first four plays in the two-minute, I'm, I'm making this up, but in the first five plays of the two-minute drill, we're going to give you a predictable look. And then the remainder of the plays, we're going to run our stuff. That's typically what happens, and it usually happens more in situational than it does um, just kind of like ones on twos or best on best. So that's that's usually what happens is it's coordination ahead of time of like we need to work on this. I'm concerned that our guys are not getting enough reps at this. Yeah. We need to figure this out. And usually that I mean that that's communication between the coaches. I mean the coaches need to have good relationships in order to do that. You know, it sounds really weird but the head coach the head coach can't approve you know there's 100 plus people at a practice. 
you know, the head coach cannot be involved in every decision that a coach makes or mediate every decision between a pair of coaches. I mean, you would coaches don't want that. The assistants don't want that. Like they're they're professionals. They want to coach. And so the that's where relationships really matter in terms from the staff levels, like at the practice time, like, hey, can you do X, Y, Z for me? Because I need to, I need my guys to do ABC uh, or vice, you know, one of those conversations and being able to have those off the cuff conversations during practice with coaches without having to, like, you know, get Aranda involved because you want to work on one thing and maybe that messes up what you were planning on working on for the day. Like that back and forth and being able to respond effectively, that's a hallmark of a good organization. And that's how that stuff happens. It really happens organically between coaches in the practice. I mean, the answer Uh, to this might be nothing. And if you really don't have any deep insight into this, you know, don't feel free to, to go full open Komodo and let the listener know that. But um, do you have any insight on what it means to be a disciplined team and what I'm thinking about is Aranda has been talking a lot this offseason about his concern for he's not saying that the team is immature. He's just saying, I just, you know, we have a lot of guys in new positions this year. I feel good about what they've done all offseason. But until we get that first adversity moment, especially on the road, I want to see how they respond. Do they commit a bunch of stupid, dumb penalties? Are we false starting all over the place? Are we holding all that kind of stuff? You know, do you have any uh, real insight? Because I feel like for fans, it's kind of a binary. It's like, this is a disciplined team or this is an undisciplined team. But obviously most things, you know, it's not, most things aren't computer science. Most things aren't zero or one. It's kind of the spectrum. So, you know, what is it, do you have any insight there as to like what it means to like all off season, how you prepare for a kid to not false start on first and 10 on the road? Like what, what does that effectively mean? So the, I actually kind of like that you net labeled it first and ten because Aranda talks. Aranda has said a lot, uh, spoken significantly about uh, we want to. I think it's the phrase is we want to be our best when things are hardest or things are toughest or something like that. But the 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 phrase in essence means the last <laughs> the last series in the Big Twelve title game. Defense is absolutely exhausted. They have, you know. Really like that. That series really. I I thought the game was over when a couldn't get him on the ground on. I think it was that third down, and he you know Sanders ran around somehow pulled uh, something out of thin air, threw a ball seven hundred feet to the air, practically hit yeah. the jumbo. It was like a hail mary for eight yards. Yeah, and somehow o- o- Oklahoma State pulled it down and, and got a first down. And I remember that play and thinking like that's the ball game because mm-hmm. all your energy for your pass rush was going to be on those first downs. Um. And of course, it wasn't. And I think that's that's the best example because you're never not going to make a mistake because it, the a thing that players, particularly athletes, have to learn real fast is that you know if you're playing so that you never make a mistake, you're not going to play as well over the course of the game as if you're just as as Aranda talks about playing green. You know, and I think Doyle's spoken about this as well. It's like when you're playing green, you're not thinking, you're just going. You're playing as hard as you can. You're you're fast. You're you're in the moment and you're going. Um, and for the listener, it took me forever to know what this meant, so I figure I should probably explain it. They're talking about stoplights. I yes. I think the problem is that football is played on green grass, and I always thought it had something to do with the field. And then finally, one of them was like, "We're not yellow. We're not red." And I was like, "Okay, I think I can put those three colors together. I think they're talking about a stoplight." So there we go. Yeah, um, that, that that is correct. And so, but yeah, like being able, you know, giving up a like all starting on first and ten is is a pain in the uh, excuse me where it's a Baylor podcast. It's a pain <laughs> in the butt. Um, 
but it, it doesn't it doesn't end your game. Like that's that's not the thing. What ends your game is being exhausted and panicking and and not knowing where you're supposed to be and not trusting your teammate on the fourth and one. And I'll give you the like the the, the example of discipline that I'll point at. And I, I and I think Jones Matt Jones is a good example. You know, at the end of the game in the Oklahoma State game, they had to pull him off the off the field. Yeah, round one. Yeah, in round one because he was so just jacked to the tits. It's like the first yeah, jack to the tits. He was, he was on four monsters. I mean, he was like, he was on four monsters, four loco. I mean, just the whole <laughs> kid. Brutal. He was mainlining Red Bull running around. You could like see his eyes. They were wide. He was screaming and he, they he was trying he too a, hard to meet the moment almost instead of letting the moment come well, to him. It, well, he was because they had, he had two things that happened. They, he gave up the, uh, he gave up the touchdown uh, because he he went to the wrong gap because he was trying to make a play, and then he gave you know he gave up a personal foul on the Baylor sidelines because he was trying so hard to make the play he hit the guy out of bounds, and so Aranda just took him off the field. And um, excuse me, I had that backwards. He had the foul. They put him. They had to put in Williams because of that, and, and then, then Williams, Williams missed the gap. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. But that, but you know, when you look at that later, you look at the very last play with McVeigh Jones has the outside leverage he trusts that mcveigh is going to make the play and he does what he's supposed to which is he jumps inside the far outside uh offensive tackle and he forces, forces the, the ball bounce. yeah and in you know it mcveigh makes the tackle but there are you know four players that quote unquote make that play and jones having the discipline to do what he's supposed to do and not try to make the flashy play but to execute what he's supposed to execute and just get around the guy and bounce the ball wide, they won the game because of McVeigh, and they also won the game because of that play. Yeah. And that that's what I think of when I think of discipline, which is in the absolute most difficult possible moment, he knew what he was supposed to do, even if it didn't bring him any glory, and he executed it, and they won the game partly because he just did what he needed to do. And that was a huge change from how he played in the first Oklahoma State game. So I think you're going to have a bunch of players in the secondary, and I think especially on the on – the, um, with the wide receivers and that that's the one that's going to be i think that's really going to show a lot of i'm guessing missed routes and some other stuff but you know those guys are just they're going to have to go through it there's really no way to fake that you just you got to go through it a few times you get your reps and then by the end of the year hopefully you're in a much better position uh you know there's a reason that baylor had that 2019 game against rice which we always reference but you know they went out there against Rice, and Matt Rule had them running into eleven man fronts in in on the fourth quarter because he wanted to get them tested against Rice. I mean, it had nothing to do with they could have won that game by thirty. And Matt Rule said, "We're going to run three plays, and I want to see what the team's made of." Those moments early in the season matter later in the season because there's no way to replicate that pressure and that physical exhaustion when you have to play hard for the whole game. Yeah can't replicate that feeling in any practice or anywhere else the can only you, word it is in the game can you contrast that to you know the browse teams were infamous for like averaging like i don't even know what it was jeff like i don't want to exaggerate here but they probably averaged at least seven eight nine penalties a game for most of the time he was there i don't know if that's too high yeah. Um, yeah, was, well, i would think it'd be more than that honestly okay yeah I and mean, a lot of it was just false do you chalk up most of that to a playing with pace in the game and B practicing at pace and so things like that probably weren't, you know, highlighted during practice. Yeah, I mean, it, in some ways, 
practice, I think people overthink practice. You know, players and teams respond to what you optimize for. If you were incentivizing not worrying about penalties and playing as fast as humanly possible, you're going to have a team yeah. that is playing as fast as humanly possible and makes a lot of penalties. And I just, that's, you know, that's what you're coaching. That's what you're going to get. Yeah. And so I think with Aranda, they're so technique focused that, and they're so focused on playing on a down to down basis in terms of executing as well as possible for this play, racking the play and moving on to the next one and, and segmenting them out that it, I think it does make it easier for them to move on because every, like, Every player makes a mistake in a game. Every single player does, mm-hmm. and you make a lot of mistakes. I mean, there are there are pro games where you know certain players might play you know not a theoretically perfect game, but as close to a perfect game as they can. But that very rarely happens in college, and so it just that level of um, not not just I'm not even sure what the word is I'm looking for, but that level of oh yeah that level of um, practice and that level of comfort in discipline like you just. You just get that. And I, I, I trust Aranda to be able to get them there. Like, we saw that yeah. from the team last year. So I, I I am more comfortable riding off 2020 because the two major extenu- – I mean, there were two major extenuating circumstances that that happened, which is first-time head coach not being really sure of himself and the second one being COVID. And to get both of those in the same year, yeah. I, you know, I – I'm not willing to just totally write off 2020 yet, but if they have a really good 2022, I, I have no problem just going like. And you have both of those things, and obviously the <clears throat> offense was an unmitigated disaster, but they still produced a top 35 defense with all of yep. that going on, which is pretty crazy yep. when you think about it. Um, something, <clears throat> excuse me, something I I like about what Aranda has been talking about this offseason is, and the retort to this that you'll hear is. You know, talk is talk, but you know we'll see it when it happens. And, and I think there's a fair amount, uh, a fair amount of reasonable this, re, excuse me, reasonableness to that. And I'm talking here about Aranda's concern of playing on the road. But what I like is that it seems like Aranda has created a couple of helpful like mantras f- that the team can recall in these moments of stress, um, in in these moments of adversity. You know, he's he's been using this pound the rock mantra. He's also been, um, you know, have has a couple of different other sayings that he's been using for kind of like, you know, it doesn't matter the situation, perform, that kind of thing, and which I think is different than where if, if he was just like starting every meeting with, hey, guys, remember, we want to be good on the road this year. I mean, that's not a very good rallying cry for when you're in the middle of adversity at BYU. If just like, hey, guys, remember, we're supposed to be good on the road this year. They, instead, they can kind of say pound the rock or whatever it is, you know, doesn't matter, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I like that it's a that it's been at the forefront of his mind, and I think it's important when we think about the season preview because obviously the road schedule is just totally brutal this year, um, and there's going to be a lot of adversity. I think I think that is one of the most alluring and exciting and tantalizing aspects of college football is this whole known unknown aspect of it in the sense of you, you can break down the game like you and I do. We can look at all these individual players and what they're good at. And yes, all of these inputs matter, but at the end of the day, and this is especially true in college compared to the NFL, it's you're relying on how 18 to 23 year olds respond in these totally insanely stressful, crazy moments that you or I have no earthly idea of how we respond um, and I think that's just what makes the game so interesting. So I, I'm with Aranda. I'm interested to see how this team responds on the road. 
Um, but I like that, like you said, he's a guy who's so focused on the details. He's so focused on technique. And clearly all offseason, it's like he uses any question he can get to talk about how he's concerned about performing in adversity and I think he sees that it's going to be a key mo um, you know a key flexion point for this season so I, I I like where their head's at in that direction obviously a lot to prove we'll see what happens at BYU in a few weeks yeah for sure all right well you want to talk about quarterback play Jeff yes I did so you know I, I so we we have been talking a lot about shape and I the thing that I wanted to talk to you about specifically because you you know this better than me when we when they're, they're so like three questions. The first one that I've been really kind of curious about is how well do you, like what process do you think Shapin is going through before the season to try to put himself in position to learn the playbook as well as he can? And so I'm going to start with that because the playbook that they had last year was really more of, it was a set of plays that they kind of ran from differing formations. And if you knew the formational alignments, you, it was still, you kind of knew what the plays were. The playbook's going to be significantly expanded this year for a bunch of reasons that we've already talked about. What is the process for quarterbacks specifically to go to like start learning the playbook? How do you memorize it? How do you practice your memorizations? What is that actual process like? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any specific insight into how Blake's going about that, um, but one can one can just imagine that. I think I think first of all, you have to think. Well, this is probably it's a real shot in the arm for him. It's a real vote of confidence because he knows what the playbook was last year. And now he sees that you know the you know he's gone from a to a two seat table at the restaurant to having the whole buffet in front of him. I mean, it, it the repertoire, you know, all of his options are totally expanded. So I think that has to be an exciting proposition for him. And the other thing I think about is that you know how does he balance kind of really just worrying about himself mastering his aspect of the quarterback position versus just making sure that he develops a rapport with a few guys that he can throw slants to on an every down basis. Uh, because I think so much of quarterback play just comes down to, as we saw with Gary and Taekwon last year, and as we saw to a, a lesser degree with, with Shapin uh, late in the year as well, um, you know, the ability to kind of just know like, okay, we can make this call and it almost – whether it's zone or man, it doesn't really matter because I know that my wide receiver has the ability to adjust um, given how the defenders are playing it. So I think that's where my mind more goes to as he's preparing for this early season is how does he how does he uh, go about finding guys that he can develop that rapport with? Because I think a lot of the early downs, um, excuse me, a lot of the early season success is going to go towards that. The second aspect of that where you're talking specifically about really memorizing things and learning the playbook. Um, I mean, I, I think that is, again, you have to go back to why they made this decision when they did. Um, the national commentators, I think correctly and rightly have commended Aranda for making this decision when he did to give Gary an opportunity to go transfer and play elsewhere. He knew Gary had earned that. He knew that he knew that the position needed clarity, but I think as we've discussed multiple times before, the other major benefit and the selfish reason for Baylor for why it was good for them was so that they could really give Bell and Grimes the ability to design this passing offense around Blake all spring and summer, or not all spring, excuse me, but post spring, all summer, and then through fall camp. And so I, my, what I imagine this process has looked like is that 
you know, Aranda talks about how the offseason for coaches is really about kind of fighting the allure to add too many different plays to the playbook. Um, because every everything looks sexy when it's run perfectly, but you have to think about how your kids can run it and how it integrates into your offense. So what I imagine this has looked like for him is that him and Bell have probably almost worked in concert somewhat to where maybe every week, you know, Bell has introduced one new concept. You know, again, I'm just this is total speculation, but I imagine this being a kind of a very um, uh, you know give and take relationship that has worked between him and not a not a first day of camp with Nick Saban. Here's your thousand page thousand page book playbook. Excuse me, uh, one beer turns me into a stammering moron. Um, but uh, you know what I imagine is that they they really had. I think if you watch that spring game, you can see this was base offense. I mean, it was base offense, well executed. Baylor's defense was still as good as it has been, but you can see that Baylor is very very comfortable in their base wide zone game and their play action boot game and all that stuff. They're able to execute it very well. So my hope is that. In, ad- in addition to all that strong base they've built that him and Bell and Grimes have been able to kind of work in concert together to add that, you know, that extra 30, 40 percent, whatever the, you know, the appropriate percentage would be. Um, and it, it, and it's almost a deal where maybe you look back and you see, oh, we've added 15 new passing concepts over the summer and fall. But it didn't really seem like that much because we were kind of doing it piecemeal. So I, I would imagine that's probably how they approached it. But I don't know. The other one that I wanted to ask you about was because, you know, we've, you and I, I think I've had this baseline assumption that the wide receivers are going to be um, – there's a lot of guys are going to get a lot of snaps in the first, like, four to five games. Yeah. And, you know, and just even guys that are showing out really well in a game are probably going to do – they're going to do some sitting on some drives in the third and at the start of the fourth quarter just because they really yeah. do want, want to get their reps in. So how do they how do how do they maintain how does the coaching staff maintain getting all those guys as many touches and as many reps as possible while trying to balance building Shapen's confidence up with um chem, like getting some more chemistry and I, I well I'm not I, you know I was almost about to try to answer the question but I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it to you first because I had a thought on it but I'm I'm gonna let you go yeah great and uh, maybe uh, hopefully we'll be simpatico here because i'm going to steal the words of a famed podcaster uh jeffrey davis um i think part of the aspect of name yourself the starter that we talked about is that um uh, a brief aside here before i get into that answer i think something that fans overthink when it comes to college football and football in general is players being worried about playing time And it's not that players aren't worried about playing time, and it's not that that's not a significant consideration. But I think for 95% of of football players, and correct me if you disagree with me here, Jeff, feel free to disagree, but I think most of the time people actually really do understand if somebody is better than them, and it tends to kind of be obvious, and and they also understand if they're the best. Of course, you're always going to have a certain percentage of people that feel like they should be playing regardless of all evidence that's available to them. But what I imagine happening early in the season is that with all this rotation, um, it's kind of like what happened with Abram and Ebner last year to where by three or four games in, it was just like, look, you didn't have to look at advanced analytics. Like you just watch these two guys play and you see that the offense is moving better with Abram. And I'm what I imagine happens with, with Blake and these wide receivers is you just notice that every time, every time Josh Cameron and Hal Pressler are out there together, the offense scores like, and there's not any drop balls. There's not any balls that are thrown behind receivers because the quarterback and the receiver are in such sync versus 
you know, if it was somebody else, all of a sudden, you know, the connection just isn't as swift and maybe there's different excuses, but I think that in football, it tends to just kind of make itself obvious by just the offense is moving. And then the team kind of just gets behind that. Um, I don't think it'll end up being a problem um, as far as like kids being sour grapes about it, because I tend to think that these stuff, these kind of things tend to make themselves obvious. So in how you balance that, I think what you do is you basically just play them that way until it becomes obvious. So, I mean, honestly, even if it's in the BYU game and we're in the third quarter and it's very clear that Baylor needs to have Armani Winfield on the field because every time he's on the field, Baylor's offense is just that much more efficient. I think that is the point when you'll just see, okay, he's going to play 90% of drives now. Like we don't need to alternate this anymore. I mean, maybe we can go back to alternating next game, but if you, if you've got the hot hand, so to say, or if that guy's named himself the starter, I think, uh, you know, Albany's not going to, you know, nothing's going to be solidified after Albany, but I think even as early as BYU, if if something's working, I think they're gonna they're gonna go with it there and let that rapport build from there. Yep. How? What? Any uh, any thoughts, disagreements on that, Jeff? No, I mean I, I do think a lot of that is uh, is is really accurate. The thing on the starting time also really matters. It, it's in terms of at the college level, you get away by being able to point to upperclassmen playing, and so you know if you've got two equal guys and the nod goes to the upperclassmen, it's it. That works in the locker room a little better sometimes than it does in the pros, where you don't have you know at that point everyone's getting paid and there there are different dynamics there in terms of these two guys seem relatively equal. Why is one guy getting more than me? It, it particularly at college, like if you've got two semi equal guys and one guy's a redshirt freshman, the other one's a senior. The senior's going to play, and that's the, those situations resolve themselves because the redshirt freshman can look at it and go, well, as long as I'm not injured, like that's going to be me, like. Yeah. My time is my exactly. time is coming. It, it just some of that does resolve itself. The, uh, in terms of the exact chemistry, though, a, a thing I think is going to be able to bail them out a lot is they don't have that issue with tight end. And so right. even if right, I think in the BYU spe- specifically, my guess is that on on the we got to have it third and sevens that a lot of those plays are probably going to end up to tight ends and mm-hmm. not necessarily to. Um, wide receivers like I think we may see a lot of like tight ends split out earlier in the season on like we we really trust Dabney to execute this route let's let him go work and just make that happen that type of stuff so yeah that's the other nice thing about throwing to tight ends there too is that you can plan routes for them where you'll target them at four to five six yards like if in that third and seven situation and say okay worst worst case scenario we're going for it on fourth and two but also these are pretty big dudes so hopefully they can fall forward and or you know power through somebody to to get that extra yard too so yeah um and then the last question i wanted to ask you about and this was this is more to do with like i I'm going I'm to just call this the vibes because I, I think this this is a good leading question to, like, I think the last segment that we were going to talk about today, which was we were going to go around the Big 12 and, like, do a vibe check on on the various teams. So how do you, like, from a quarterback perspective, because, I mean, I, I this is, you know, I, I never played college ball. I don't, I don't have any experience with that. I know you didn't play college ball, but it's just you've been around these guys, I think, a little bit more, particularly this year. Yeah. How do quarterback, like, a quarterback has to build in a certain level of, confidence from the team mm-hmm. and that and it's not just you know it's not just run around and like 
slapping guys on the butt and screaming "Good job!" Like yeah. they're common. Like there's a leadership component to the quarterback position that does matter, and I mean it, it genuinely does. And and you know unless you were legitimately Aaron Rodgers and you were so good that everyone just looks at you and says, "Okay, it yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're you're." You're the you're the most talented quarterback like in the league in your prime. Um, unless you're that guy, like you need some level of leadership skills. So, how do you like? Do you think that's going to be an issue for Shapin this year? How does he work on that? You know, what is your thought process on that? How does he handle the offensive line? Those guys are all older than he is. You know, when they when when they go to get in a huddle, like they're going to look down and go like, "Oh yeah, you're." You can't drink yet, you know. You know what I mean? Like it's you're not 21. Like that, it's it's that kind of interplay between them. Of some of those guys are, uh, you know, 22, 23 years old, basically across the line, and maybe 24 by the end of the season. You know, that's that's a grown man. And so, how does how does that interplay work with a younger QB in there? How do, how does he build that? How does he yeah. build the vibe? I mean, I think you you know, Baylor fans need no remembering this and have been reminding themselves and others all off season, but. It, it helps that that dude led you to a Big 12 title. I mean, because so much of sports is about getting to where you want to go and avoiding doubting yourself in that journey. And so I think a big aspect for them is like, we know this guy can take us to the where we want to be because we've already seen him do it. So I think that's a big aspect of, of, of respect. Um, really thinking about that last aspect of your question there, Jeff, of how he garners that respect from the people around him. Because you know he, he's you know proof positive there. Um, something that's been fun in the few media sessions that I've been to is you can always rely on the, um, especially the um, like at least one person, no matter who the player is. Um, one of the reporters is going to be like, "How about them Blake shaping passes? How are they looking?" And you know, I, <laughs> I, you never know how much a player is kind of BSing in the moment. But I feel like I have a pretty good read on when guys are have to gather themselves for a few seconds before they say something they don't want to say and then they start to answer versus like every time these guys are asked about Shapin and his ability to throw the ball, all of them are just like, man, I love it. I love Blake Shapin and I love catching balls from him. And and I think that is kind of one major aspect to that is something I didn't understand when I was a stupid six-man high school quarterback was that I had a decently strong arm. And so like it, I was uh Jeff, you'll have to think of a good quarterback comparison here for me, but I just love to rifle the ball as hard as I could, like no matter the route. And my receivers like hated the fact that if it was a five yard slant, I was still throwing basically as hard as I could. Um, and I, Gary wasn't a guy who did that, but he also just didn't have that natural kind of lilt and touch um, and placement of the ball that makes it easier for easier for players to both receive the ball and then make moves after the catch. So I think that's what you're seeing a lot of the receivers and tight ends respond to. You know, I asked Ben Sims if um, I didn't use your name, name, Jeff, but I said, you know, my, my buddy calls it the Peyton Manning throw. Have you and Shapin been working on that? And he kind of coyly said, yeah, I mean, it's not the exact same, but we're definitely working on those kind of layered throws for sure. Um, I think there's an excitement level for the receivers to know that no matter where they're on the field, even though Shapin doesn't have the strongest arm, um, he can really kind of lift the ball over zone defenders and place the ball in a way that they knew Gary couldn't do. We love Gary. I think he's going to do really well for South Florida. Well, I shouldn't say that because I have no idea what South Florida situation is, but I think Gary's a good player. I think Gary's a good quarterback. 
Uh, he yeah. and he flashed moments of greatness last year. But one thing he was never able to do was look into a zone, maybe on the far side of the field, and make a throw that would have required essentially a top tier combination of touch and accuracy. Um, sometimes he had the accuracy, but not the touch. Um, and that's where it got him into trouble because the ball would just kind of sail on him. So anyway, um, I think all that to say is I think the receivers, it, it gives you a bit of jolt knowing that you're not on every down. Some downs, you know, you're not getting the ball. I mean, that's just how it is as a receiver. But <clears throat> I think there is a big thing knowing, as you talked about, you know, most of these progressions are one, two to one side and then, you know, third option on the backside. I think there's a lot of excitement for these guys knowing that, hey, I'm the third option on this play, but look at this coverage. I think our offensive line is going to give him time, and there's a really realistic shot. He's going to come back to me. I'm going to run my route harder. I'm going to be ready to play. So I think that's, that is something to watch for to hopefully elevate the wide receiver play. And the fact that he's already taken them, the, taken them to the Big 12 title, I think gives him a lot of uh, a lot of credence uh, or creed. What's the word? A credo? I don't know. Is that Italian? Whatever. Gives him a lot of chops with his teammates. And um, so, you know, he's not the most assuming guy. Um, he's kind of got a quiet confidence to him. He's not as standoffish as somebody like Brewer was, which Brewer was one of the weirder. Co- Brewer was a leader because guys respected him for running people over. I, I you know, I don't really know. Um, as a receiver, how awesome it would have been to play for him unless you were Denzel Mims or RJ Snead in 2020. I think something you might see with Shapin here is because of his ability to um, go through progressions, throw the ball with touch and accuracy really mu- pretty much on any down and distance that you might see a higher level of kind of playing for him because they know selfishly I might get the ball on this play. That was a long winding answer, but hopefully there was something in there. Yeah, there was for sure. So that concludes part one of our Baylor season preview for this 2022 season. As stated, this was the kind of winding, random, no show notes before, just kind of going where we went with it. Uh, We'll be recording a much more um, planned out, really diving into what we think this offense is going to become, what we think the defense is going to become, and really what the ceiling is you know, base case and worst case scenarios are for Baylor this season in a part two episode that we'll be recording here in a few days and be releasing this following week before the Albany game. Hopefully, Jeff, if you're listening before the Albany game. So uh, Jeff and I actually recorded a, you know, 25 minute segment where we kind of did a vibes check on each of the big 12 teams. Um, We had planned on doing a deep review of each of the, uh, you know, a full on season preview for the big 12. But we decided that as opposed to really talking about stuff we didn't know about. And the reality is you can't know enough about all these teams preseason because there's just not enough information available. So we decided to do a quick kind of vibes check on them. And then after week one, when we're able to see these teams on the field, we're going to come back and do kind of a, now that we have that base case of information uh, type preview Uh, We think that's going to be a lot more informative. And so what we'll do is we'll compare what we see in week one to our vibes check and see what we think we had right and wrong and what we see for the rest of the season. So be on the lookout for that. I'll be releasing that sometime this week, pretty soon here in the the next few days. But as for now, this was part one. Be on the lookout for part two. You know, this is already an hour, 25 minutes long. So thank you all for listening. I hope that Jeff and I's kind of rambling nature will be deep dive into these random topics that uh, that uh, come to our mind as we speak. 
is interesting to y'all. So let us know, give us any feedback. We are very, very open and receptive to any positive or negative feedback. We want to make this better. Ultimately, this is about the listeners. Jeff and I don't just do this because we have an abundance of time and want to talk together all the time. Though, you know, obviously that's part of it, but really this is about delivering good stuff to to Baylor fans and the feedback from y'all. So thank you all very much for listening and be on the lookout for part two.